Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Still, okay, there we go. <laughs> All right. Well, as we continue our study in the church, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be turning our attention back to Matthew sixteen eighteen, and that's where we began in our study of the church. And what we did the first time we addressed Matthew sixteen eighteen, we addressed the basic question, what is the church? So our first lesson on the church, we did was on what is the church. The second lesson was on the church's mission, and we turned to Matthew 28 to talk about the Great Commission. And this week what we're going to be doing is we're going to be making a case for the local church itself. And so as we do that, we're going to be returning to Matthew 16, 18, but this is primarily going to be topical, so we'll be uh, addressing a variety of different passages in the Bible which speak to the issue of a local church. And really, this is going to be an argument in favor of the local church. So, in some way, what we're doing is justifying our existence. Uh, why, why do we come and gather uh, here today as an assembly? Why do we do that? Why do we find that necessary? Is it necessary, for instance, or is it optional? Is it something that you can take or leave? Well, those are the, all the sorts of questions that we're going to be addressing. But as I said, it's going to be an argument in favor of that. Now, and I did this study on conflict resolution. I, uh, I mentioned the fact that sometimes when people hear the word argument, they're thinking primarily in terms of a, a angry disagreement, which is typically noisy or unpleasant. That's not what we're doing today. We're not going to, in an angry way, argue for the uh, local church. What we're going to be doing is we're, we're thinking of the word in more of a neutral sense. So we're going to be giving reasons uh, to give people, you know, reasons to put in our own mind and thoughts as we think through uh, why we gather together as a local assembly. So what I have is I've, I've given a case, meaning a series of reasons why we uh, why we come and we gather as a church. So um, some of them are very unremarkable. I don't think, I mean, I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel or come up with anything particularly compli- complicated. I just want to walk through the biblical teaching on this and uh, just give some uh, simple, straightforward reasons why we're doing what we're doing. And really it is important to start out at this basic of a level. I mean, I, I think depending on the generation you live in, you may take for granted that you go to church just because you go to church. And maybe that's why, uh, you know, why do we go to church? Well, we go to church because we've always went to church. And maybe it's more a uh, cultural thing or a uh, tradition thing. And uh, we don't really sit uh, sit down and think through, well, why are we doing what we're doing? And this is really a question that we we really need to gain clarity on in many different ways. Uh Part of the, uh, I'm not sure that we know all the long-term consequences of the internet, for instance, but uh, 
some of the long-term consequences of the Internet and is the fact that we have such great access to information uh, today at, at, at a degree in which we've never had in human history. So, uh, you know, you can just go on the Internet, search YouTube if you want to learn how to repair your car or, uh, you know, make an animal balloon or <laughs> any number of different things. I mean, you, we can become experts in all uh, in many different subjects just by simple few clicks, a uh, few uh, clicks of the keystroke on the keyboard. Uh, so uh, part of living in the Internet age means that we have great access to information. But then if you think about that and how it relates to the church, then I don't know if you thought about this, but there is a generation of people, particularly people of my generation, who are finding it less and less important to assemble as a church. And one of the reasons why they find it much um, less important to assemble as a church is because of the access to information that you have. And so, I mean, if you want to hear... um, I mean, even a few years ago, I could think think back maybe 10, 15 years, and there wasn't the sort of information that we have today. I mean, there's any number of good uh, blogs out there. There's any number of good websites with good biblical teaching. And, I mean, you can look on the Internet and you can find, uh, you know, all of, all of the pastor's sermons are on podcasts and on the internet, and so you can find much better preaching than you're going to get here on the internet. I mean, the simple fact is that uh, there's no way that uh, Kevin or I can compete with uh, you know John Piper's preaching or whoever your favorite uh, preacher is out there. I mean, we just don't. Uh, we're not going to be able to compete with that. And so, um, if you think about that, though, I mean, if you approach the local church from the perspective of a consumer. You just come to church because of what you're going to get out of it. And one of the things that you're looking at getting out of a church is great teaching. Well, let's just be honest. You could stay at home and get better teaching than here, right? I mean, and that's just a fact. I mean, in, in terms of just if, if, you want to, if you want to think through um, the kind of information that is out there, if the only reason you're coming is just uh, in order to be fed, I mean, relationships are hard. Right, you come to church. It's hard to develop long-term, good relationships, but we're sinful in many different ways. And so, uh, you know, if you're just thinking in terms of convenience and ease, it's easier just to sit at home. I mean, you, less conflict that way, less difficulty that way, less, uh, you know, struggle that way. And so, if the only reason why you're coming is just for things that you get. Well, it may be easier to stay home, and there's a lot of different people in my generation who are coming to those conclusions, and so they're looking at. Um, yeah, Passages like um, Jesus speaking to the woman at the well and say the time is coming and now is where we'll no longer worship in Jerusalem, but uh, true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. And they're interpreting that to mean that it doesn't matter if you come and join a particular local assembly or worship together with believers. It doesn't matter. You can do you can worship God just as well as at at home or, you know, just in nature. Go visit. uh, You know, you can worship God while. You go on a, a trip somewhere just as well as you can coming to church. And so I think in that sort of situation, what we want to do is we want to think through some reasons why we do what we do. You know, is coming together and assembling as a body, is that optional or is that something that uh, is integral to what God is doing in the world in this uh, age in history? And so what we want to do is give some reasons why we're uh, why we come together as a church. Now, um, 
as I said, uh, I mean, I, I think this uh, lack of church commitment, whether that's in terms of joining a church, which we're going to be talking about next week, the importance of joining a church, or whether that's just showing up to church, uh, I think it's a big problem, especially in the Bible Belt. Said the majority of people I've counseled have little to no church attendance. And so, you, you, you know, there, there's a whole, whole lot of people who want to identify themselves as Christians uh, who think of the church, the local church is very small on the priority list. It's one, just one thing among many. It, hey, it may be helpful for you, but uh, it's not so helpful to me. Or maybe I have a hard time finding one that I like or whatever else. But there's, there's many people who, who would uh, identify, identify themselves as Christian who have really no connection to the local church. And so what we want to do is lay a, uh, make a case for the local church. Uh, now... Uh, I don't think the case is particularly hard to make, and and, and so I mean I think as you look through the the information you see in the Bible, I don't, I don't really think it's very hard to 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 make this case. But I hope that as we go through this information, what you see is that uh, the church is in, integral, the local church, particularly you know not just the universal church, the local church is integral to what God is doing at this age in history. Uh, this is. Um, uh, what God is doing, and so I, I think we want to make a good case for that. And so, what we'll do is we'll start out with a couple uh, definitions. So, when you open up the Bible to Matthew sixteen eighteen, you see the first use of the word church in the New Testament. So, uh, as we talked about two weeks ago. Uh, Jesus says to Peter, "And you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church." And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So when you see that word there, church, as Pastor Kevin said, that word church is uh, ecclesia, which is uh, just a normal Greek word which means assembly or congregation. So it's just a normal, plain word which means assembly or congregation. So as uh, Pastor Kevin said, when you see that word, you're not to think of the church as uh, to be identified with a building. So uh, you're, you're to think of the word church as identified with a group of people. So the, you, he made a basic distinction there between an assembly and an assembly hall. So as we think about this church that Jesus has promised to build, we're thinking primarily in terms of a group of people, uh, an assembly of people which will one day be gathered together. So as you read through the book of Revelation, what you see is that at the end of time, there will be a great multitude from every tribe, tongue, uh, people, who will be gathered together. So uh, in that way, what we're talking about is we're talking about the local, uh, the universal church. Now, the universal church is the whole body of Christians in all times and all places. And so as you read this uh, uh, passage about God's building program, you, you think primarily what he's talking about in terms of building this church is he's, he's talking about the universal church. One day there will be a great multitude gathered. Uh, it, this multitude is no longer going to be divided on ethnic divisions, for instance. And so it won't just be made up of Jews. It will be made up of Jews and Gentiles, right? Uh, our great commission that we're given is to take the gospel to all nations because we want all nations to be part of that uh, in-time gathering of people, right? So we want every single nation to be a part of God's church. And so the gospel is preached indiscriminately to any people group and every people group uh, because a, a, every people group will be included in God's one body, the, this bride of Christ that he's uh, died for. So that's what you're talking about when you're talking about the, the universal church. You're talking about this one body of believers. Uh, so whenever you meet a believer, you, a genuine believer, you know that that, 
believer is a member of the universal church. And there's a commonality that you have there. You have fellowship with uh, that believer. Why? Because you've all been bought with the blood of Christ. Uh, You've all been taken from the kingdom of darkness and transitioned into the kingdom of light. And you all are a group of justified and redeemed people who are no longer living life primarily for yourself, right? So there's a fellowship there. And you don't have to... um, I mean, you know, if you're a member of the church, you don't have to have fellowship. You already have fellowship. Why? Well, because you already have shared interest and and values with a group of people on the basis of what Jesus has done for you. So uh, as you're thinking of the universal church, you're thinking of you're all members of this one body of believers that will one day be presented to Christ as his bride. That's what you're talking about. Now, uh, when Jesus says... I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. Does he have something uh, more than just the universal church in mind? So I didn't say, notice what I said. I didn't say, does he have less than the universal church in mind? Does he have more than just the universal church in mind? And that's the sort of question that we're going to ask today. And I think the answer is yes. When Jesus, talks to, when Jesus says to Peter that he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, he's talking about ultimately this uh, one body of believers in all times and in all places. But he's also talking about uh, that uh, universal church being expressed in particular local assemblies like the one we have today. So that's, that's the argument. And, that, and we're going to make a case for that. And so I'm going to give you reasons why that's the case as you go through the Bible. Now, the first uh, first reason why that's the case uh, may just uh, sound overly simplistic and obvious, but uh, the first reason why you think that there is more than just the universal church in Christ's mind when he, when he thinks about the, the word church is the fact that the word churches is in the Bible. So I, I don't I know that that's a fairly unremarkable point there, uh, but if if the word ecclesia is ever in the plural, Right? If it's ever in the plural, then uh, the New Testament, God, therefore, by extension, must recognize there to be more than just one universal body of believers that are gathered together. So if you ever see the word churches in the Bible, that gives you some indication that this one uh, body of believers, this universal church, will be expressed in particular locations. And so however broad you want to define those locations, uh, there's some sort of location. Uh, Because the simple fact is that the universal church is a gathering which has never been gathered. Do you understand? So, uh, if the word church is in the if if the word churches is in the Bible, then Jesus must understand that there's something more uh, specific than the universal church. So, the universal church is considered the whole body of Christians in all times and all places. If the word churches is in the Bible, that must mean that God recognizes uh, divisions in the churches that are designed for a particular purpose. And so I I don't think that's incredibly remarkable, but I've given you some uh, verses on your handout there that would uh, show the plural use of the word churches. A representative passage there is Acts 15.41. I believe it's talking about Paul, and it says he went through Syria and uh, Sicilia, strengthening the churches, right? So there's more than one. There's more than one universal church. Uh, Now... uh, the universal church, or the local church, therefore, is not just an invention of man. It's not just something that apostles came up with somewhere along the line in order to get a paycheck or something like that. Uh, it is integral to what God is doing in the world. So, uh, now, the second point there on your handout is given further uh, 
definition of the first. So uh, not only is there the word churches in the Bible, but these churches are defined by geographic regions. So what you see then, and I'm going to run through this information very quickly. That's why I gave it in the handout form and not uh, fill in the blank. But what we're going to do is I just want to, I want you to see the breadth of information on the New Testament on uh, the nature of local churches. And so what we see is that as you look through the Bible, you look up every use of the word church in the, in the New Testament, what you're going to see is not only are there more than one, but you see churches which are defined per continent. So you'll see, for instance, the churches of Asia in 1 Corinthians sixteen nineteen, 19, uh, and also in Revelation 1, 4. So the churches in Asia send you greetings. So there's multiple churches in this continent. Uh, not only is there multiple churches in the continental level, there's also multiple church, uh, churches per country. So uh, when you see 2 Corinthians 8, 1, uh, Paul says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. So that's a country. I've given you a foot, footnote there. Uh, Macedonia means extended land. It's a country bounded by the south of uh, Thessaly and Imperius, uh, to the east of Thrace and the Aegean Sea, on the west by uh, Illyria, 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 and on the north of Dardania and Mosaia. So uh, Macedonia is a country there. So not only do you have multiple churches in, the, in continents, you also have multiple churches in countries. Uh, not only do you have multiple churches in uh, countries, you also have the church described in regional terms. So look at uh, Acts 9.31. So the church throughout Ju- all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was being built up. So you have uh, the church at the continental level, the country level, the regional level. Uh, but then also you see further divisions. You see multiple churches per region. So look in uh, Judea. Uh, so, you, you know, there's one church considered throughout all Judea, Galilee, Samaria, this big region. But there's also multiple churches within the region. So look at Galatians one twenty two, And it w- and I was still unknown in pers- person to the churches in Judea. You see? So uh, continent, uh, country, multiple churches per region. Uh, and then uh, also in provinces. So you get more narrow and narrow and narrow. Uh, look right here in Galatians 1, 2. And all the brothers who are with me... Uh, to the churches of Galatia. So you have um, not only multiple churches per region, you have multiple churches in uh, provinces. Uh, but the primary division that you see in the New Testament is the church in a particular city. Now, uh, I didn't on your handout list every single uh, church in a city, <laughs> uh, but I, I, I do it on mine, and I'm just going to name them. So you have the church in Jerusalem, you have the church at Antioch, the church at uh, uh, Caesarea, the church in Ephesus, the church in Smyrna. And you just read through the revelations, the revelation of the seven churches to those. you got Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Corinth, uh, Thessalonica, you have Rome. So, I mean, the primary division that you see as you read through the Bible is the division at the level of city, but then also it gets further than that. Uh, so, what I've done on your hand out there is you see churches at specific locations in a particular city. So, um, the first you see is a seaport there. So you have a, a, a church which gathered at a seaport. So that ought to tell you something, right, about about the, uh, you know, the, the church can assemble, assemble wherever they want to assemble, right? So there's nothing wrong with a church meeting in a shopping mall. This church met at a seaport. Romans 16.1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea, which is basically a seaport. Uh, Primarily what you see is churches who are meeting in houses. So uh, you'll see uh, Prisca and Achaia. 
they, there's a church that met at their house. There's a church that met at the house of Gaius. There's a church that met at the house of Nympha. Uh, and there's a church that met, as we just uh, noticed in our study of Philemon, at the house of Philemon. So, um, now I'll just make a brief footnote here. I mean, there, there are members of what's called the house church movement who thinks that the only biblical place to meet is in houses because that's what, where they met in the early new church uh, times. And in order to respond to that, one of the things to remember is uh, the reason why they met at houses is because they really had nowhere else to meet. So notice, I mean, if you, if you think through Paul's missionary strategy, what Paul did was he went into the synagogues, which were the natural Jewish meeting places. So in every city he went into, he went into the synagogue, and then he preached long enough to get everyone mad at him, and then to kick him out, right? And then all the people that got kicked out because they were mad at them, they all... They had to go somewhere, right? So where are you going to go? Where are you going to go to the largest structure to which you have access? And what is that? That's the Roman house. So it, you may think the reason why they met in houses is because, uh, you know, they wanted a nice intimate time of fellowship and prayer. But that isn't really the case. The reason why they met in houses is because it's the, it's the largest structure uh, they had access to. It's the only place they had to go. They just got kicked out of the synagogue. What are you going to do? You have to meet somewhere, right? So uh, in global locations where shelter is a basic need, you, ha- you have to meet somewhere. So you, in, in this case, they met in the house, uh, the Roman house. Now, the Roman house had a centralized courtyard, which is cap- capable of holding up to 150 people. So these Roman houses that they're meeting in, they're fairly large structures. They had this uh, atrium, the centralized courtyard, uh, capable of holding up to 150 people. So they're big, expensive buildings that they met in, and they're just the biggest building they had access to, so that's where they met. So that's why they met in houses. But not only did they meet in houses, they also met in a seaport, so you can't really say that houses (laughs) is uh, better than anything else, right? So... Uh, that being the case, uh, what you see is you see particular local assemblies meeting in seaports, houses. Uh, you, you see regional church. You see local uh, city church, um, continental church. Uh, there, there's just uh, there's so much information in the Bible about uh, divisions of the universal church that it makes you think there. You know, this isn't something that is. Um, Optional. This isn't something that's kind of an afterthought. This isn't something that the apostles just made up. This is part of God's plan. When he says, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He had in mind the universal church being expressed in particular local churches. If you understand what I'm saying. So uh, let's give some more reasons. If that's not enough, I think it should be. I was, you know, I was sold at uh, the plural use of the word church. So, I mean, I was, I didn't need anything else. But uh, we really want to give more information and sort of give a picture of the local church as we keep on giving more information. So what's another reason why we say that the local church is uh, part of God's vision? Well, we see that Christ's ecclesia, or church, is an assembly that is expected and commanded to assemble. So why is that a reason for the local church? All right. Well, if if all God had in mind was the universal church, you, then one of the things that you have to understand is there's no way for the universal church to gather on a regular basis. Not at this point in history, right? So as you look through the New Testament, what you see is you see the expectation that uh, Christians will assemble together. So 1 Corinthians one, First uh, Corinthians eleven eighteen. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, it says, I, I hear that there are divisions among you. 
Uh, and then he goes on to address that particular situation of a church that is assembling together as a church and there being divisions there. But the, the point for our lesson here today is when the, the group of saints assembles as a church, God recognizes it as a church, right? It's not just a bunch of believers meeting together as a home, a home Bible study or uh, doing their own thing. There is something, there is an assembly of believers who come together that God recognizes as a church. And so he recognizes more than just the universal church. So there's this ex- expectation for assembly. Not only is there an expectation for assembly, there's a command to assemble. Uh, so uh, uh, a sign of, uh, you, you, know, you want to know what it's, uh, if you're interacting with the a believer or not, one of the ways you know you're interacting with the believer is you see this uh, this uh, necessity that comes up inside them to meet together with fellow believers. And uh, Kevin just preached through this in Hebrews, so I won't elaborate too much on this. But as you look at Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, um, the author of Hebrews says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So not only is there an expectation for assembly, but Christians are uh, commanded to assemble. They're, they are those who do not neglect to uh, meet together as is the habit of some. In, in the language of the King James Version there, it's uh, not forsaking uh, the assembling of ourselves together. So, um, not only is there an expectation, but there's a command for believers to assemble. And furthermore, when the church assembles, it is considered a whole church. Uh, that's a significant thing that we'll uh, address, I think, next week in language of church membership. So, uh, one of the reasons why you think there is such a thing as church membership is because when the whole when the church comes together it's considered a whole church so that must mean that there's some way to identify who's included in that whole you understand uh but i'll leave that for next week but uh all those things together the fact that uh christians are expected to assemble the fact that they're commanded to assemble uh, the fact that when they do uh, assemble it's considered a whole church that all goes to point to the fact that god recognizes the local church it is part of what he is doing in the world uh further uh, now, the church assembles, so, uh, you know, we've described the church as an assembly, and so it's expected they assemble. So, the church assembles in order that the assembly might be built up. Now, uh, this, is, uh, this is an interesting point. Uh, we'll read 1 Corinthians 14.4 here. Uh, in the Paul's passage on spiritual gift, he says, The one who speaks in the tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Verse 5, now I want you to all speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Uh, similarly, 1 Corinthians fourteen twelve. Uh, so with yourself, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in the building up of the church. So when Christians assemble as a church, they are building up the church. Now, in some ways, this is kind of a, a problem for Baptists. Um, I think uh, we'll leave the issue of spiritual gifts aside for the moment and uh, leave that for a later study. But uh, I, th- I think as Baptists, we're tempted to think of church growth almost exclusively in terms of numerical growth. So if I were to come up with a church growth strategy, what would come to mind? What would come to mind is some plan that I have in order to get more people uh, in our assembly, Right. I mean, that would be the natural thing that would come to your mind first, I imagine. I mean, I'm not 
Maybe someone else is thinking of something else. But uh, uh, one of the things to realize is that as the Bible speaks about the church being built up, um, when, when you think about this language of being built up or church growth language, more often than not, as you read the Bible, church growth is identified with spiritual growth. Right? Uh, so just because a church may be in numerical decline, for instance, doesn't mean that the church is not growing. There's many different ways that the church speaks about growth. Uh, there's many different ways the Bible speaks about church growth. Some of it is by adding more, uh, more and more believers to the assembly. That would be, as you read through the book of Acts, you see, and many uh, believers are added to the, their number. So that's one form of church growth. But one of the main forms of church growth that you see as you read through the rest of the New Testament is this idea of uh, we edify one another so that we may build the church up. So... Uh, that, that'll be a, uh, an issue that we address also later on. But the basic point that we're trying to make here today is that if the church assembles in order that the assembly might be built up, you're talking about some definable thing. Uh, the whole church, uh, the universal church can't gathered and, uh, be gathered and built up. Uh, it's only something that can happen at a lo- local level. Uh, letter E here, there's also directional language. So, um, 3 John 1, 6, he talks about... Um, this person who testified to their love before the church. Uh, Matthew eighteen seventeen. if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And so you're thinking of a specific local gathering of people. Uh, uh, basically, uh, that's the only way you understand this directional language. So there's more than the universal church in mind. Uh, finally, uh, well, I think we have two more, no, three more here. Uh, the fact that particular local churches receive correspondence is strong evidence that uh, there is such a thing as the local church, that the local church is not a creation of man. You see this in particular with all the letters of the New Testament. So the letters of the New Testament are written to churches who are described as churches. Uh, uh, particularly in the language of the Revelation, you see to the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Uh, now those are written... It's interesting. I mean, maybe we want to turn to Revelation quickly, just so that we can beat a dead horse. Uh, now, notice what you see in Revelation chapter 1. Uh, John has his vision of Jesus uh, in Revelation chapter 1. And here's what the vision is described as in verse uh, 12. So, John says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstand, lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool and snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the voice of, or like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was shining uh, like the sun full, in full strength. Now, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last. I am the living one and died, I, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you've seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. Now, notice he's going to give a, an interpretation of the vision. So, John sees a vision of um, this glorious figure walking in the midst of seven golden lampstands, and in his hand he's holding seven golden stars. So, here's the interpretation. What does it mean? As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand uh, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So you see that 
Jesus is standing in the midst of seven churches, and he's holding the angels of the seven churches in his hand. And what he goes on to do is he goes on to write letters to these seven churches, commending them for the good that they're doing, and encouraging them to repent in areas where they're failing to accomplish his purposes. And in many of those letters, what you see is if you don't repent, I'm going to come in judgment, and I'm going to remove your church. Right? So what you see is that God recognizes the churches. He sends letters to the churches warning them about the importance of repenting. And if they don't repent, he's going to remove the churches. And so far from being something that the you know early church leaders just made up somewhere along the line, you see that God uh, recognizes local churches. I mean, if, if you know, I would, I would, I don't know, I'd, I'd probably be scared and uh, enjoy at the same time for God to write a letter to our church and tell us the good we're doing and the bad we're doing. But uh, I hope I'd want to see it. Uh, but <laughs> but um, the point, though, is that God, when God looks at our particular local assembly, he recognizes it as a local assembly. And uh, we could we could have, you know, if we were around... 1900 and some odd years ago, uh, we could have been one of the churches he would have wrote a letter to. And, you know, that letter hopefully would have contained some encouragement, uh, unlike uh, Laodicea, maybe. And then uh, would consider some uh, warning, too, um, perhaps. And so uh, what, what, one, of, one of the things that you see there is that, you know, G- when Jesus says, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He has in mind particular local churches, too. You understand? So uh, particular local churches uh, receive correspondence. So the New Testament is predominantly a collection of letters which are given instruction to uh, local churches. Uh, so not only is he writing to these little, local churches, he's addressing their leadership. So he's appointed their leadership. Uh, he, he expects faithfulness to his purposes. So in the case of Ephesus, suffering for Christ's sake and hating what God hates. Uh, Pergamum, holding fast to Christ's name, refusing to deny Christ and willingness to face martyrdom. Thyatira, growth and godliness and good works. Uh, Sardis, a few faithful men remain, so that's their encouragement. Philadelphia, perseverance, they, they've been persevering. Uh, but then God will also remove local churches and no longer serve his purposes. So, uh, for instance, if Ephesus doesn't repent of losing their first love, they will be removed. Uh, Pergamum needs to repent of tolerating false teaching and sexual immorality. Uh, Thyatira, uh, same thing, tolerating false teaching and sexual immorality. They need to repent of that. Sardis is described as a dead church, and uh, Laodicea seems to have no believers left in it. Uh, so, uh, very few to know believers there. So, uh, all that to say that God recognizes the local church, and uh, he, he understands what we're doing here today. He's encouraging what we're doing here today. Uh, he recognizes what we're doing here today. And what we're doing here today is part of God's mission for this age. Uh, now, also... Uh, elders are appointed to oversee particular churches. So you, there's just so many passages which address this. Uh, and I'm going to explain why that's an argument for the local church. But elders are, partic- are appointed to oversee particular churches. So Acts 14.23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord uh, in whom they had believed. So there's elders that are appointed uh, in every church. So uh, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed, welcomed at the church by the apostles and the elders. And they declared all that God had done for them. That's Acts 15.4. Um, 
Let's see, uh, 1 Timothy 4, 14, do not, uh, Paul writes to Timothy, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council, council of elders laid their hands on you. Uh, 1 Timothy five seventeen. let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, except especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Um, Titus 1, 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you may put uh, what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. James 5.14, if is anyone among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Uh, it's not just Paul, it's James. Uh, look at First Peter. First Peter 5, 1-3. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering of those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So uh, we're going to be talking about elders at a later point in time, but uh, just as a preview, elders have responsibilities over particular congregations. How would you like to be an elder of the universal church? I mean, don't sign me up for that one. Right? I mean, if uh, 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 Hebrews 13, uh, 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Do you think I want to give an account for the souls of the universal church? No, thank you. <laughs> I'm not up to that one. I'm not even up to the uh, souls given to me. <laughs> so, uh, so basically... Uh, that is the point, though, is that elders are appointed to oversee particular churches. That means that there is such a thing as a particular local church. Uh, God sees this relationship. He recognizes this relationship. It's not something that people just came up with. Uh, it, it's something that is part of God's plan. He's given uh, church leaders responsibilities. He's given church members responsibilities. He's defined certain relationships between members and responsibilities. Um, you know, the responsibility of leaders is to care for the souls of uh, that are under his charge. And so there's some way of defining those. We'll talk about that next week too. But all that to say that the local church is not just uh, something people made up, right? Um, so uh, what are some implications of this? Well, Campus Crusade for Christ, for instance, that's a wonderful thing. I'm glad I want to bless the work that they're doing, but they're not a local church, right? Uh, so uh, similarly, home home Bible study with friends. There's uh, You can get together with a group of friends uh, and study the Bible together. That's a wonderful thing you're doing, but you have to understand that that's not an assembly of the church. So um, that's something that we, sh- you know, we, we as Christians are encouraged to do, uh, get together as a group of friends. We're encouraged to get together and to talk about God. Part of I mean, most of discipleship should be happening at the individual, personal level, uh, small group level of friends, that sort of thing. So if we're going to be intentional about making disciples, you're going to be uh, finding someone, you know, finding someone who uh, knows less than you and sharing what you know with them uh, at the individual level. But all those things are not uh, recognized as a particular local assembly. And what we're going to be doing throughout the study is to, is really given substance as we go on. What is a local church, and uh, what is it supposed to be doing? What's its uh, you know what's its structure to look like? What's its format to look like? We're going to try to answer as many questions as we possibly can about what happens at the local church level. The only point here today is just to say there is such a thing. Okay. So there is such a thing as a local church that we're going to give substance to. We're going to define relationships and talk about responsibility issues and everything else. But um, if you're ever on the Internet, here's the point. If you're on the Internet and uh, you uh, 
pull up an article on church membership, you're going to see any number of hateful comments about the idea of a local church. And now you have uh, A through H to give them as reasons why we're not making up the local church. So the last thing we'll say is uh, the church is given commands, ordinances, and responsibilities. So uh, all those things can't happen at a universal level. So you can't have uh, just baptisms at the universal level, Lord's Supper at the universal level, church discipline at the universal church level. So um, those all, the commands and responsibilities that we're going to be going through, they all imply some sort of something along the lines of a local church. And what we're going to be doing... So just as a preview of where we're going is uh, we're, as we go through the study, what we've said here today is there is such a thing as a local church. And then next week what we'll talk about is why you should join a local church. And, so, and then as you go on through that, we're going to talk about you know, the responsibilities of church members, uh, qualifications for church members, qualifications for elders, deacons, everything else. And so we're, what, what we hope to do, and we're even going to address the, uh, the assembly, what do we do as we assemble together? So um, I know, I'm sure there's tons of questions along those lines, but they're all going to be addressed and uh, discussed in our small group. But the main point here today is that well, when Jesus says to Peter, You are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He has in mind one body of believers that will one day assemble and be presented to Christ as his bride, but he also has in mind uh, that this universal body will express itself in particular locations in a particular way, which we're going to define. So uh, thank you guys for your attention, and I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. Lord, we just thank you for the chance. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.